I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, thanks so much. Um, it's so nice of the bookshop to host us. And Mark, thank you for reading. Maybe I'll say a little bit about the, the book and then um, Mark can have at me and then you all can. Um, so... This book began, um, well, a long time ago now. Uh, I've known Sarah for three or four decades. I'd, I met him not long after Tilted Ark was put up. That was uh, the sculpture uh, in the Federal Plaza in Lower Manhattan, commissioned by the government that became so controversial. I'm sure many of you know about it. It was a big arc that divided a, a plaza, and I met him just a, a few years after um, in a local restaurant called The Odeon, where, where artists and writers used to hang out. And he was really taken by the, the fact that I uh, was part of another generation. I, um, he was in his mid-40s then, I was in my late 20s, but was already associated with a group of artists um, called the Pictures Artists, people like Cindy Sherman and Louise Lawler and Barbara Kruger. And Sarah is so um, curious, so rivalrous in his curiosity that he really wanted to know what this new generation was about. So I think that's why he engaged me. Uh, why else I you know, didn't have much to offer him. But then the, the Tilted Arc, uh, controversy happened. Uh, it was an early moment in the culture wars. Um, it was just after Reagan was reelected, and there's, it seemed almost programmatic on the part of the administration and Republicans at large then to um, pull back on the, the transformations uh, in art and culture of the 1960s. And Sarah was seen as one of these transformations. It was a concerted attack against the sculpture and against Sarah. There were hearings held. They were really um, set up against the work in a way. Uh, I testified uh, in, on his behalf, but not with the passion that he required. So we've, we actually fell out for a few years, several years, in fact. Then he had an extraordinary second act, a second coming as an artist. He began to do the torqued pieces. I'm sure you've, you've seen them. First they were serpentine, and then they were ellipses and spirals that were bent in these extraordinary ways to make these uh, exceptional spaces that you could enter. Uh, and he, he came back into public life as an artist. These, these works were so new in terms of the spaces, in terms of the sp experiences that they allowed that he found a public again. And that's when we began to talk more seriously and that's when we began to uh, do conversations in, in public and then in private. And the book is really drawn from conversations that span at least two, two decades, a little bit more. Let me tell you a little bit about his formation. I don't want to go on too long, um, but Sarah was born um, in 1938 in the Bay Area. He, he grew up as a working class kid. His father was a pipe fitter in the shipyards there. Uh, so his first experience is of the Bay Area during World War II. He works in steel mills uh, as a teenager. Uh, he fakes his age so that he can take up this work. This is very important, at least in his narrative of his life, um, this direct encounter with industrial production. He goes to Berkeley on a 
Sports scholarship, he's a football player, American football, breaks his back. Uh, was already interested in art, drew as a kid, but Jettison's uh, sport for art sees nothing in the art department at Berkeley at the time. They're all second and third generation abstract expressionists. He senses this is done with. So he transfers to Santa Barbara uh, to study literature. This is at a time when all kinds of people are at Santa Barbara, um, mostly for the sabbatical by the sea. Margaret Mead is there, Aldous Huxley, and he encounters these people. He does his um, senior thesis on Camus. He's very taken by existentialism, but he also begins to read the American transcendentalists, uh, Emerson in particular, the, almost the very first term that Sarah uses to describe his outlook is self-reliant. Um, and he re refers to his experience on the, alone in the sand dunes. But that's obviously a key Emersonian idea, American idea. So part of the interest of the, the book for me and the, and the, is the difference between Sarah and me. Um, Sarah is a Emersonian existentialist, if one can imagine such a thing. And I'm anything but, you know, I'm an um, old wannabe uh, post-structuralist. So we have very different ideas of what uh, it is to be a person, what it is to be in a situation, what experience might mean. Um, anyway, from Santa Barbara, he goes to Yale. He's one of the last students of Joseph Albers. He actually proofs the pages of Interactions of Color, an extraordinarily important book by Albers about how, the, how color works. Yale is a, a place where he meets uh, all kinds of artists. He's in the same year as uh, Bryce Marden and Chuck Close. They're artists from New York that file through, like Rauschenberg and Johns, Ed Reinhardt. It stimulates him again in his uh, ambition which is very, very rivalrous, just say it one more time. Uh, he then goes, he gets a fellowship from Yale and then a Fulbright fellowship to spend a year, then two in Paris and Rome. He goes to the, the Brancusi studio and, and thinks as he draws the, the sculptures there that he must become a sculptor. That's his, uh, well, one of his Primal scenes, one of his origin myths. Uh, he's also taken, very taken by Giacometti, follows Giacometti uh, around Montmartre, stalks him. He's there with Phil Glass. Um, they were friends from very early on. He travels to the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, has this extraordinary spatial experience that begins to extend what he understands as sculpture. He goes to uh, Madrid and sees uh, Las Meninas of Velazquez and understands that painting is dead for him, that it's too bound up with the frame, that it's, it, all it can be is a picture. You'd think he would understand this about painting, but that, that the picture is such a, a limitation for him. And this becomes a mantra throughout the conversations. Anything that is imaged, framed, pictorial is bad because it somehow takes away from uh, our own experience of our body in space as it moves in time. Uh, so that's absolutely fundamental to him. And, and this is how he thinks, you know, very emphatically as, a, as an artist to you know, make a space for his own uh, way of thought. He returns to New York you know, continues to hang out with Glass, who weirdly is his studio assistant. They have no money. He starts a moving company because he has a truck uh, with Glass, Steve Reich, Chuck Close, Spalding Gray. Um, I mean, these guys are movers. It's ridiculous. But through this experience, this is, um, you know, Soho, Tribeca, when it was an ex-industrial area, through this experience of just crud on the street, um, I mean, literally, like, he got into rubber because a, a rubber factory uh, went out of business and it just 
loaded the stuff, offloaded the stuff on the street, and he, uh, he threw it in his truck and dragged it up to his studio. He got into lead because Glass survived as a plumber. And Glass said to him, why don't you see what you can do with this stuff? And those are his two primary materials of his, of his young career um, as a sculptor. What else can I say that I don't want to take up too much time from, from Mark? One more thing, because it, it, it so interests me, too. Sarah, I mentioned primal uh, scenes. He's very good, as many artists are, at origin stories. Um, He's not young, he's about to turn 80 next week. Um, and he's, he's very aware of the necessity of a, of a story for an artist. And this, you know, this concern with, with narrative, um, especially as artists get older, is, is emphatic. And he, he has great stories to tell. And one of my difficulties is that I know some of these stories. I've heard them before. And to get him past them, because so often, Stories can be like screen memories. They can be ways not to talk about what's really, really important in his life or in his work. But I, I let him tell a few um, because I think they're, again, they're so pointed. One is, um, he says he was three. Uh, he's with his father. His father, again, pipe fitter in the shipyard, takes him to the launch of a ship. And he's so struck by the size, the weight, the mass of this thing as it's on its ways, and then as it's released, this hulk, as it shifts down the ways uh, towards the water, and then it just plunges into the water and bounces up and finds its, its balance. And he said that, you know, that's a vision that he cannot get over. He actually has it as a, a dream. You know, that's, you know, may or may not be the case, uh, any in all of it, but it, it's so effective as a as a story about his own orientation. Another is um, he's on the beach, you know, again in the Bay Area. Older now, but he walks down the beach one way alone, self-reliant, um, you know, for long ways, then turns and then walks back, and he discovers as he turns and walks back that there's a whole other world in this turn, that there are two worlds, and these two worlds are sutured by his body. And, I mean, that's, that's almost a, a story out of Merleau-Ponty. You know, it's just such a, it's too good a story about a phenomenological relation to the world, but he holds on to it. Um, I get him to tell other ones that I can, um, mentioned, but another one in the book that might also be familiar, then I, I will shut up, is, um, and this happens uh, much later, and it's his, the origin story of his, of his torqued pieces. He says he's in Rome, um, how old would he be? In his, in his 50s, uh, he goes to the, the Borromini church, the San Carlo, you know, small church, one of the great, uh, buildings of Baroque architecture. It's, there are two ellipses on the floor and on the ceiling. He enters from the side, and he thinks, as he enters the space, that these, these two ellipses are torqued in relation to each other. And he, he thinks he's encountered a volume, a, a space that he's never experienced before, and he wants to recreate it somehow. Um, obviously, the, the two ellipses are not torqued in relation to each other. This was his misperception, but it's one that um, became the basis of this kind of drive toward, to invent uh, these new spaces with his sculpture. Maybe I'll just pause there. Why <laughs> don't you jump in? Well, thank you for the book, uh, which I really enjoyed reading, and um, beautiful as well, beautifully designed. Um, one of the questions I had, first of all, is how come uh, instead of a monograph that you may have been expected to write on Sarah as an artist <laughs> that you've looked at for many years, uh, you chose to, um, 
to sort of gather these conversations? And, and what, how often did you see him? How, how much did you edit? Um, how was it put together, both from your perspective and from that, like, actually, how, how did you do it? Right. Well, you know, Sarah is, is intensely discursive. Like, he really needs an interlocutor. And I think that is very true of his generation. I mean, you know, one hears about, um, or generations before, too, the abstract expressionists at the Cedar Bar or his generation at Max's. They love to argue, they love to fight. I mean, maybe this is a, a macho thing. It's maybe a question of gender we can get into, too. But he's very agonistic, um, and he needs not only an interlocutor, but an opponent. And when we first began to talk, he really overwhelmed me. Um, I said in the first draft of the preface that the narrative trajectory of our early conversations was Godzilla meets Bambi. <laughs> and he asked me to take it out um, <laughs> because he said, who's Godzilla here? Um, yeah. uh, but I, I learned somehow to, to fight back and get my own touches in. It is, it is a bit like a, a match, and maybe that's a problem, but... There must uh, have been a point that, you, you know, you published one of the conversations already, but at what point did you and he agree you're going to make this book and then um, continue to make the rest of the discussions? We didn't really know what we had because they, they happened over such a long period, but, you know, as time went on, I mean, again, he's not young, he's not well, and I think... This was his idea of a, um, of a story that he could help to shape. And he's dialectical in his thought, too, so he really needed um, resistance. And I, I offered it. I mean, he had it with Robert Smithson. Smithson died. He had it with Eva Hess. She died. He actually had it with Kirk Varnado, a curator at Museum of Modern Art. He died. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Where am I going with this? Um, knock on wood. I forgot the question. Um, yeah, no, but he, so he needs, he needs that, that tension. And we, you know, we really didn't know if it would make a book. Um, there aren't many models. Um, I could be pretentious and say, well, Hitchcock and Truffaut or Picasso and Versailles, but those are artists. Yeah. Duchamp did a book with Pierre Cabin, but it's really funny. This one's not. Uh, there's not really model. Another one of his interlocutors was David Sylvester. Yeah. Uh, Sylvester meant a lot to him. He did a piece um, called Sylvester, but they never really pulled together yeah. a book. One of the things that you've evoked already is how, how fruitful his dialogue with was with other artists in the in you know in Lower Manhattan in the early late sixties early seventies with right. Smithson Eva Hess, but with dancers like Yvonne Rayner um, and with uh, Steve Reich and Philip Glass. But I guess by the mid seventies, one doesn't hear so much about his dialogues with that community of makers. Why do you think that stopped for him, and what replaced right. it? Another great question. Um, he says at one point that, you know, on this return to New York, this is 1966 or so, that there were just all these makers and doers, um, that they didn't self-define as painter, sculptor, choreographer, composer. And if you think about the people that he was around, Glass, Reich, they introduced new ideas of what composing would be, what music could be. It's the same um, with uh, dance. I mean, it was really taken by Judson Church, and he really gives it up to the women of Judson Church. Um, he says they really were the avant-garde. Uh, Yvonne Rayner, Trisha Brown, Simone Forti in particular, because they use simple gestures, basic tasks, as a way to rethink what dance could be. And if you think about his early work, that's what he did. You know, his, his signal work or program uh, for work was this list from 1967 called Verbless, where he just writes down all these verbs, these actions that he can do 
uh, different materials. So that idea of making and doing is crucial. Um, he says, well, you know, and we were, we were the audience for each other too. So there was this way in which there was intense critical feedback all the time. So why does that stop? Stops around the mid seventies. Yeah, maybe it's when Smithson dies, but is it, or he begins to travel a lot more and to find his intellectual nourishment in other cultures. Right. Did well, he's, yeah, he he discovers what sculpture can be for him, and that's what he then wants to pursue. I mean, it's this may seem forced, but there's a way in which minimalists like Donald Judd and Dan Flavin of the half generation before Sarah said in effect that they were interested in specific objects that were neither painting nor sculpture. Sarah always insisted on the category of sculpture, even though I think he has redefined it radically. But let me just, because we don't have images, um, let me get his voice into the room. And just at this moment where he goes from making and doing to this is sculpture, he says, uh, I was very interested in Carl Andre because he always dealt with the physicality of matter, different kinds of wood, different kinds of metal. One day I said to Carl, look, somebody has got to get these plates up off the floor. And he looked at me, smiled and said, don't worry, Richard, somebody will. I thought, oh God, I better do it. So I took four lead plates. If you put four of them together, they weigh a ton and dragged them up to my studio one at a time in the elevator. I thought by leaning them together and overlapping them at the top badge, I could get them to freestand. This is really important that he says all his work freestands. And when I, I did, it looked like a house of cards. That's what the name of that famous first prop piece is. I think you can, most of you can see it in your head. Even though it seemed it, it might collapse, in fact, it stood up. You could see through it, look into it, walk around it. And I thought, there's no getting around it. This is sculpture. Now, was it sculpture? A sculpture had, as had been heretofore known? No. But was I willing to stake my belief on what I was up to? An unattached lead plates propped against each other, weighing a ton, and almost about to implode. To stake my belief on them being sculpture? Yes. Just as much as Andre was when he laid one brick after the other to make lever, and people yelled at him, that's not art. The stakes were very serious and very high. A lot of what we were doing downtown was experimental, but that doesn't mean we didn't know what the historical responsibilities were. I was thinking about Brancusi and Giacometti. I looked at them every day when I was in Paris. Closer to home, I was thinking about Johns and a host of others. We knew what the odds were in terms of finding our own way of doing and making that was going to challenge what, be, what came before us. Again, that rivalry. I think of all, all of us felt that what was needed, what we needed to do was to make our, our own syntax to define ourselves as artists, not to make somebody else's work, to make our own. I got divorced over House of Cards. Nancy Graves, his wife at the time, asked if I was going to show it as sculpture. I said yes, and she said she couldn't live with me anymore. <laughs> this is me. That's what, I, that's what I mean by insistence. It's some indication of how fraught definitions were then. Sarah, look, I understood what my responsibilities were. If you say I'm an artist, you can do lots of things. You don't have to pin yourself to any one tradition. I know that's very conventional, a very conventional thing to do, to say I'm a painter, I'm a sculptor. But I didn't sit in front of Giacometti every night at La Capole or go to Brancusi's studio every day for nothing. I was empowered by them. And so after House of Cards, I knew it was a sculpture and I couldn't play around anymore. It was not a question of neither nor. That's an allusion again to Judd that um, a specific object is neither painting nor sculpture. It's interesting, at the time, I mean, when I used to teach in an art school and teach video art, I would show Television Delivers People, which is his, one of his only video pieces, and it's maybe you know, the best work of video art in understanding its situation in relation to network, network television. Mm -hmm. So when you were talking about his practice at that point, did those kinds of projects, his drawing, his video, his film, do they seem peripheral to him in his insistence on making sculpture? Yeah, I mean, the book is conversations about sculpture. Whenever, whenever at one point, 
we talk about politics and disagree about politics. It's, he thinks politics have no place in art, in his art. And then I mentioned, you know, television delivers people uh, and other pieces that he's made more recently. Um, he did an iconic piece in relation to Abu Ghraib. And somehow he brackets them. Yeah. Because uh, he really wants to focus on sculpture. He mentioned drawing. Very important to Sarah. Um, but drawing comes after sculpture for Sarah. Not just in priority, but literally after. He doesn't draw to prepare a sculpture. And this, this goes back to his first you know, moment in the Brancusi studio. He thinks drawing in a sculptural way, that it, it cuts edges, it makes space. Um, and he, his, another mantra is, well, perhaps I mentioned it, anything to do with image is bad. So he doesn't want the image to exist first and the sculpture second. The sculpture has to be, uh, take its own, own form. Why does he move away? from this milieu of makers and doers. I mean, an extraordinary group. They must have had an idea that they were extraordinary. Artists do, don't they? I mean, what's your experience? I many, mean, they, I there's think, an intensive, intensity of the milieu and it breaks yeah, apart. Many do, and if you look at his generation, most of the ones who did, they actually physically moved to another place, like Judd going to Marfa. Right. Um, it's interesting that he sticks around in New York, and there's one bit in the book where, without naming Lawrence Wiener, um, he refers to Lawrence Wiener saying, well, I've already thrown um, you know, a, a, a glass of paint out, on, uh, out of the studio window, right. so you can't make a splash piece with molten lead. Uh, and Richard's completely intolerant of Wiener's position, but it, it made me think, God, how can you stay around downtown New York and be so disparaging about other artists and survive? And he doesn't have a lot of friends. Um, I mean, he didn't have to go away to be reclusive in a way. Um, there was an internal exile. I mean, you have to understand, too, that by the time of Tilted Ark, he was really under attack. Um, and he insists in the book that that attack at first came from artists because it wasn't just one work in Lower Manhattan, he had three at the time, two were temporary, one was permanent, Tilted Ark. And at a time of very limited resources for artists, he was taken to be quite privileged by other artists. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's, he's always had an uh, antagonistic relation uh, to the art world um, at large. But where did he go? I mean, he, he did travel, uh, and he traveled in a particular way. He went to, well, I mentioned, Istanbul, Sophia. He went to Machu Picchu uh, in the 1960s. Very importantly, he went to Japan. The experience of, of Japanese gardens was crucial because it was a way uh, to get him to understand what it would mean to open sculpture out to a field and to think about sculpture in terms of a body in a space as it moves in a field and how one goes from detail to the whole back to detail. That was crucial. He went to Sardinia to look at dolmens. He went to the Aran Islands. Uh, he went to Petra. I think he went to places where he could learn about non-modern, often non-Western traditions of site work, maybe architectural, that was tectonic, where, that, where structure was the most important thing, because he couldn't find it in modern sculpture. For Sarah, not only modern sculpture, but all sculpture, have, almost after Donatello, but certainly after Michelangelo, is a desert. Mm. Um, and this is actually weirdly consonant with how Reich and Glass feel about music, basically from Bach to Stravinsky and Schoenberg. Um, but, you know, Sarah, in the, in the book, there's a chapter about his, his take on modern sculpture. And you'd think, on uh, David Smith, you know, a sculptor who took on an, a, at least the look of, of industrial procedure would be a favorite. No, he's, you know, Sarah says he's a, he's a minor Picasso who just welds assemblages, you know. I've never welded a thing in my life. Uh, I have to work up my... Um, imitation of Sarah because I have to <laughs> go it alone a couple of nights in the future. I uh, don't have Mark with me. Um, but he's, he's very uh, critical of 
precedence in modern sculpture. Yeah. Welded sculpture means little to him, you know, Gonzalez too. Gives it up a little bit for moments in Picasso. He never takes Picasso seriously as a sculptor. Duchamp, oh my God, the ready-made. That was the thing that he most wanted to undo, even though he used ready-made materials that he would find, like rubber and lead. He doesn't find um, much in the way of precursors. I mean, he gives it up for Brancusi and Giacometti, as I've mentioned, but not because of any pure form in uh, Brancusi or any imagistic content in Giacometti. He, he gives it up to them because it puts sculpture on the floor, that they ditch the pedestal and they activate sculpture in the space of our own being. One of the things that struck me is that as he begins to look back at those, you know, uh, other cultures, other, other eras of object making, tectonics and so on, a, a younger generation are taking the implications of, of his work in directions that he may trigger off, but right. he doesn't pursue himself specifically when it comes to the idea of site specificity. So right. for him, working in a site predominantly means addressing the architecture, the building, uh, and your experience in the space with the object and the architecture. For a next generation, it means understanding who's paying for that room, what the institution is, and right. so on. And at one point, you ask him about what it means for him not to take up the, the inquiry that he initiates. Can you say a little bit about that question? <laughs> yeah, that's a Godzilla moment. He says, how can you evaluate me in terms of artists that have come after me? I say, well, unless you think, this is not what I said, but I wished I had said it. Unless you think that art history is only about historicism, then that's right. But can't an art historian or anyone uh, reflect on what, what's happened after back on a moment that comes before. I mean, I wonder how you think in terms of the ethics of the art historian or the ethics of the museum curator. Can you question a work of art and artists uh, in terms of, of subsequent developments? Can you round on him or her? You know, for Sarah, that was just out of order. You know, I, because as you say, the notion of sight so important to recent art really has shifted. You know, first it's physical, it's discursive, institutional. Now, you know, almost anything can be a site for work. It's the same with um, what is the subject of art, you know, what's the viewer of art. For Sarah, it's, it, it's just a phenomenological body that's not differentiated by hmm. class or gender, sexuality, ethnicity, anything. And again, this is where our differences really come into play because for me, sight means all kinds of different things. For him, not at all. For me, the subject means all kinds of different things. For him, not at all. But so he actually got me to, to think differently as we, we went back and forth on I mean, some of these. To take terms. up those two, right. two different things. I mean, one of the questions that a younger artist might, or a different artist might ask is, okay, so if you're commissioned to do a work in a private space, um, by uh, you know a, a private collector who has set up a foundation. Nowadays, one should ask questions about where that money comes from, what kind of a audience they're inviting, how often the the the, yeah. the, the space is open. Uh, Sarah seems still to take that space to be the topography, the relation. You know, what buildings are there, where are the trees, and yeah. so on. Right. Uh, and he'll probably visit the site pace it out, come up with an amazingly thoughtful um, sculpture in relation to the topography, but not ask those questions. So at one point you ask questions about where his work is now cited, since far fewer cities are able to commission him. Right. Most of the work is being made in places like Glenstone and other yeah, places. Private museum. Um, what does, or the desert in Qatar. Or the desert in Qatar. <laughs> I mean, I think, and, but how do you feel that part of the conversation went? Well, obviously you think I should have pushed him further. I mean, one, one uh, task for me was just to keep the conversation on, you know. You could have said, I've had it. Uh, and he did a number of times. But yeah, I, I, I do press him as much as I can because there's, and he does say I mean, that we end with uh, a chapter, a conversation about contradictions. And he does say that 
for a long time, his motto in his studio is you know, work through contradictions, you know, Marxist motto. Although I'm not sure that he is much of a Marxist. But he, there is a great irony in his work because there is this commitment to industrial production, this commitment to the working class. I mean, he is a kid of the working class and he admits that he no longer is, but he feels that in the transparency of his work, the way that he says, here is a material, here is an action on that material, anyone can understand it, that's not necessarily true, that, that that's a, um, a transparency that shows a commitment to people. Now, what do you do with the fact that that absolute insistence that he defetishizes the work of art, you know, in an almost constructivist way, and shows how it's made, anyone can get it, that it's democratic in this sense. What do you do with that idea and the fact that he is one of the darlings of the neoliberal <laughs> plutocrats um, that rule us? I mean, some of his greatest patrons are People like Len Riggio, who's the head of Barnes & Noble, in a way he's now priced out by Amazon, but he destroyed bookstores around uh, the West. Uh, you know, he's, he's a darling of hedge funders who, you know, have demolished the working class um, as they, you know, buy and sell and strip assets. And, you know, it's a real contradiction. And so in part, his insistence on sight simply as physical is defensive. Mm. Um, and what about the point in the book where you pointed out to him that some people find his work overbearing and he is surprised that that could have even been said, which you know, comes out of your, your second point, that you treat the subject as determined by many things, not just our body, but by race, class, gender, sexuality, and so on. Uh, and that from certain positions, his work might, you know, um, it be experienced in different ways, not just as pure right. forms I, in space. Right. And I, this is actually where I, I want to agree with him. And I, I understand that so much of the work seems aggressive, especially the early site work where he, he moves sculpture into the city, actually into the landscape too. It can be aggressive there. But that... Um, I, I want to argue that the aggression that is read into the work is an aggression sometimes that people feel about the very environment in which they live. That they make the work aggressive, whereas in fact it's the environment that's aggressive. And it's an environment that he, it's not that he wants to ameliorate it, but he wants to make it into a space that we can experience, that we can understand. So for him, these sculptures are not aggressive. They're invitations to re-experience your own body in relation to structure and a space. Um, and they're actually, whether, whether or not I mean, you, you buy it or anyone buys it, I don't know. But well, I mean, you know, on the one hand, they're extraordinarily heavy, and they, you know, take a lot of finance to put them up. But right. on the other hand, if you watch people move through the sculpture of the last fifteen years particularly with the talked ellipses and with spaces opening up and not knowing how many curves you have to yeah. walk around, that there's an extraordinary playful yeah. uh, experience sometimes. Kids come to his work. I mean, he loves the way that, that kids interact with the work. But, you know, so I'd, I almost want to, I, I do want to defend him on that score. But one place where he, he convinced me, and this is where the Emersonian rounds on the post-structuralist, he, he insists that if you keep the idea that anybody can experience a work of art, that that's not a, a way to efface the, the differences among us. It's a way to say anybody can. That there's a real democratic impulse uh, that at least by and large we have this physical substrate as the basis of our experience, and that, that can be a shared experience. And that the work is, um, should not be uh, subject-specific in its address, because that would limit who could appreciate it. 
but that it becomes subject specific in the experience because as much as we have similar bodies, our bodies are also different and we experience that difference in the experience of the work. So, you know, why, 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 have, why have that be the work of the artist? Why, why not have that be the work of the viewer? So some, some of the viewers who experience his work in different ways are artists. <laughs> right. And uh, I just wanted to throw up a couple of images here. I've, I've told you that I would. But um, one of the early readers of his work was David Hammonds, who in, um, in the early 80s experienced, as you said, these three large sculptures going up in Lower Manhattan. And right. this was... Four or five years after David Hammonds, who had started his career off in, in Los Angeles, moved to, uh, moved to New York in the mid-70s. So he'd been in New York for a few years, and then he um, makes two sort of performances. One is called Pissed Off, where he urinates on one of the sculptures, and the other is called Shoe Tree. Actually, it's the same sculpture. It was... Yeah, it's, it's called TWU. It's, it was down in, by Franklin and West Broadway. Um, uh, and so here... Um, uh, doesn't exist David anymore. Hammond's uh, through trainers, you know, which are tied together by uh, shoelaces over the ridge at the top of the plate. Right. And both of these are sort of really important works in Hammond's career, independent artworks, but are viewers responding and viewers from a particular position right. of uh, another, you know, also working class, but um, African-American working class. And they are, I think, powerful readings of uh, Sarah's work. <laughs> But yeah. what would he say to them? Well, we actually talked about them, and I very much wanted to include it in the book, and he just wouldn't. Um, but I'll tell you what we did talk about. Uh, a few years before the Hammonds actions vis-a-vis -vis his sculpture, Sarah did a, a piece in the Bronx um, in a really tough neighborhood. It was uh, 183rd Street. Um, and it was a street dead-ended where cars were stripped down. Um, and this is where, in a way, it was, this is when, you're, you know, if you're oblivious to the social conditions of a site and to simply see it as physical, you're blinded to political implications. So for him, it's just a, an urban site. He, he embeds a, a circle uh, in the middle of this disused street and it's, just, it's a very important piece for him because it's, for him it's his first site-specific piece. For Sarah, the definition of site-specificity is a negative one. To move the piece is to destroy it. it comes, that's a definition that comes up with tilted arc. You know, it's the last defense. To move it is to destroy it. So you know, he makes this move in the Bronx. I think David Hammonds goes south to lower Manhattan and makes a counter move and pees on on the sculpture and then throws basketball shoes over, both are acts of, of territory. And maybe it's like a, a macho you know, boy pissing yeah. match that they're in and that Hammonds hasn't really questioned either. But for Sarah, this is, you know, A, he called it vandalism, and then B, he said, why would any artist use the work of another artist as a prop? I mean, we, we now know that this happens all the time. But this, this gets to why he, he insists on sculpture and why he, he moved away from his milieu of making and doing because he, he, he really believes that art should be as autonomous as possible. And that once you develop a language, you should follow it. And, and you shouldn't need to be propped against the language of another, even the language of an institution. That's why he's suspicious of institution critical artists. Mm. You know, one thing that he's done, and maybe we should open it up to the audience, is that he's, he's so insisted on autonomy and the abstraction means everything for Sarah. But in a funny way, he's, he's returned autonomy into engagement. I mean, he's, he's squared the, the circle of that contradiction. Um, we, you know, we often think that autonomy in art and commitment, that they're opposed politically. But I think Sarah you know, wants to see how they can be worked together and that you can be committed to an abstract art but have it plunge back into the world. I'm almost persuaded by him. In fact, I am persuaded by him. Unfortunately, you tell me this might be on YouTube, and if he, hear, if he plays this, there will be another Godzilla moment, but what the hell. Yeah, yeah let's take some questions. In relation to interventions with his work, I mean, to use a very old, a very old term, isn't Sarah involved 
in a kind of uh, investigation of the sublime. How do, how do you mean? Say, well, say more. They, they are overpowering and they're, uh, they're, they're kind of, the, the mystery attached to the work is such that um. in terms of their formal language, uh, they don't relate, I mean, in the way you're talking about the, you know, that particular work being site-specific, but it's not site-specific in the sense that you're talking, you know, that you would talk about. Yeah, again, he's, um, he's really resistant to the idea that they overbear people. And I, I think that might be a partial blind spot on his part. But one word that is also a real trigger for him is monumental. He does not want to see the work as monumental because he thinks monuments arrest you as a viewer. They stop you physically. And that's the last thing he wants in the engagement of, of his work. And he was also accused of oppressive, monumental work in the Tilted Ark controversy. I mean, those were the big clubs that were used to beat him up. And, but especially in recent work, there is an intuition of the monumental. And this has to do with a, a turn to a late style. I, I don't know if late style can be conscious or not, but in his recent work, there's an evocation of ur forms, like symbolic elements like the grave, the sarcophagus, the stelae. Uh, nothing imagistic, narrative, iconographic. Um, I, I say at one point, you know, can we think about these as monuments without monumentality? No, I think right. there is a return of the monument in his work, but he wouldn't see it as oppressive. He says, and this is how he talks about uh, all of sculpture, all of architecture in the past and in other cultures, that he's just not interested in what it means. But there is an aspect in which they're threatening because of the, yeah. you, know, you know, those inclined, huge inclined steel plates. So yeah, you he... Can't, you can't disregard them. No, I, I think that that's right, and I, I do press him on that point. Um, he sees a physical threat. You know, he insists that after the prop pieces, that they're all, I mean, they're all engineered. They, they're all signed by an engineer. But it is the case that uh, in 1971, a worker, a rigger, was killed in the installation of a prop piece in Minneapolis. It is the case in 1988 that a worker was badly injured. And those experiences affected him profoundly. But, I, you know, I, I can't disagree that there is threat. But he feels that 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 perception, that sense, has overwhelmed other readings of his work, and that's why he pushes back against it. Some of those pieces that you mentioned that are quite recent in the last three or four years that uh, maybe remind one of a grave marker. Right. For me, they look back to work he was doing in the early 90s, where there were sort of a series of three works that really connect to the history of the Holocaust. Gravity, which he yep. made for the um, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Drowned and the Saved, which was made for a synagogue in, uh, in the Rhineland. Yeah, and the title is a reference to Primo Levi. And then uh, his work, which he abandoned on the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. Um, what did he say about that kind of group of works? He talks about yeah. his mother being Jewish and sort of that being a concealed part of his identity for many years. Well, I'd love to hear you on the subject um, because we don't go into it enough. Um, one of the first pieces that Sarah impales, as he put it, in beds, uh, is a piece called Tot, your German dad, um, that he makes soon after his, his mother dies. She actually committed suicide. So I, I totally agree with you that that interest in symbolic form, almost you know, primordial elements that we, we don't necessarily read but take in in one way or another, that, that runs through much of his work. But it's come back with real force um, as he undertakes a late style. He's very mm -hmm. conscious that the austerity of his work recently reflects on his own mortality. But he also insists that some late style, there's delight too. I mean, Matisse had a delightful late style. There's, there's also a counter to this, this heavy work with very light, I mean, weightless pieces. I mean, it's weird to talk about Sarah as weightless, but there there, there are pieces that are, that almost seem to levitate too. I'm taken by 
thinking about him as uh, an artist that works predominantly in his later years for people with money. Uh, and wonder what sense you have of his ambitions as an artist in the last 10, 15 years of his career with relation to the idea of space. I mean, presumably he's financially secure enough to take on commissions without needing to get paid if that were his inclination. Right. I mean, maybe I've stressed this too much in part because of the question from Mark. You know, Sarah largely funds his own work. So he's not, I hope I did not make it seem as if he's simply given over to these collectors. I mean, I think it is a problem that every super rich person seems to have or need one who's a collector, have one in the backyard. But you know, when I press him, he's, he says, well, collectors are fine as long as they don't get in the way. And sometimes they do get in the way and he, he leaves the project. But it is the case that he, he sees these sites as, as physical, too much as physical only. And that allows him to not see the others. But again, he's, he's focused on the development of the language of his work. You know, this, he says again and again, it's about the syntax. It's about the syntax. Is that a way to not see all these other contexts? I, I think in part it is, but I think we have to get, give him that belief in his own autonomy, even if it's um, somewhat compromised. And that's what drives him forward. I think it's, it's not a pathology on his part. That's true of many artists, especially as they um, are not young anymore. They want to see out the work. They want to see what the next piece will do to the work that's come before. I mean, I, it's, it's a little scary, um, that commitment, but I admire it. I mean, it, it may seem macho, it may seem narcissistic, but it's not. I mean, this, this is an artist who also really wants to engage people. Do you think he likes the limitations of a space that might not be that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, for him, um, you know, the one real problem that we discuss is the way that his work because of its expansion, might have impelled an expansion of, of galleries, of museums, Tate Modern. Uh, you know, if there is a, a space war, and it, you know, it could be reduced really badly to like, you know, Sarah and Gary, but there is a way in which, um, you know, th there is a dynamic that's greater than his own practice in which he's involved, and that's, Maybe a problem. I think his work, and I, th I think Sarah would agree, is best when it's it pushes up against its physical limits. Um, when it really engages the architecture, and the architecture uh, delimits it, and that can be a landscape too. I think that's when the work is is most productive. Um, but that's where you know, again, he defines sculpture against the image, against picture, against the painting, in relation to sculpture, in relation to landscape. But that's his differential way to insist on uh, a new definition of sculpture as it moves into space and into sight through, those, through that pressure. Thank you so much for this. Uh, thank you so much, Hal. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.